All right. Are we all ready? Now I got to remember what I say. <laughs> Wendy, I'm doing great. How are you? I am doing well. I can't believe it's the end of July. I'll be honest with that. Um, the summer is speeding by, but uh, but that's okay. Um, when this show comes out, we will probably get to listen to it together in Florida, which will be awesome to be hanging out with you again. I am super excited to get to see you twice in one summer. I know. It never happens. <laughs> so that will be very fun and so we'll have more to talk about and hopefully some more guests to line up so more great people to talk to um, but I know that this is going to be a fantastic show with lots to talk about so we will jump right in and we always start with uh, self-identifying so I am Wendy I am female white straight side gender uh, Christian able-bodied I think that's how I'm identifying tonight <laughs> <laughs> and your pronouns? Uh, and thank you. I'm like I'm forgetting something. My pronouns are she and her. And how about you, Anne? Uh, my pronouns are also she and her. You know, we talk about this a lot. There are a lot of ways that that um, that any person can identify themselves. And when I think about these conversations that we have, I feel like it's really important that we are naming our privilege because that's that's really key to the kind of conversation that we're having. So I am a white, cisgender, straight, non-disabled woman. Um, there's probably more privilege packed in there somewhere that I'm forgetting to say. Um, but for the purpose of this conversation, it's really important for me to ground myself in that. And with that, I am going to introduce our guest, Kelly Wagner. I am so excited. This is one of those rare times where I am getting to speak to our guest for the first time ever. Uh, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Kelly Wagner is a consultant, a speaker, and the founder of Collective, a diversity and inclusion consultancy and research lab, shifting how companies grow, engage, and retain diverse teams. Collective helps build inclusion into the foundation of organizations through st strategic consulting and innovative accelerators, all centered on amplifying marginalized voices. Prior to founding Collective, Kelly spent a decade working in strategy and operations at fast-paced startups like Meetup and DoSomething.org and graduated from NYU's Managing Workplace Diversity and Inclusion Program. Her work has been featured in Forbes and AlleyWatch, and she's spoken at companies like The Muse, Deloitte, The Wing, and Namely. Kelly, welcome to the HR Wonder Women podcast. And um, the first question I'm going to ask you is about identification. We know that intersectionality matters. It's the whole foundation behind this podcast. So start out by telling us how you identify. Of course. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And I think even just the way that you all set the tone um, with talking about identity is really awesome. So yeah, first off, I identify with the she, her pronouns. Beyond gender, some of the more impactful dimensions of my identity include being biracial, as well as 
a black woman. So biracial because I have one white parent and one black. And I think talking about privilege, fully recognize that kind of being a light skinned biracial black woman um, does hold privilege, but also black because visually when people see me, that is most relevant to my daily experience walking through the world. Other things that I identify with and that shape my worldview are identifying as queer um, and as identifying with having an invisible disability, so namely depression. And I've been in recovery from an eating disorder for over a decade now. That's that for now. <laughs> <laughs> That's, I, I, and I, I so appreciate you sharing all of that because I think that the more we share how all these different ways we identify, the more normalized it becomes. And I am definitely one who trips over a lot of that. And so I'm getting better at trying to, to say when it's, when we're normalizing it, it's something that I want to happen. I want us to be identifying and, and everyone to feel comfortable doing that because even with all of our privileges, there are different ways where we're going to struggle. So I appreciate you naming all, all of those. So, so tell us a little bit about your journey. And what led you to start Collective, a DEI lab? So I really fell into this space. If you'd asked me five years ago if I had any interest in working in HR, I'd probably have looked at you <laughs> funny. <laughs> and I still have a little bit of a problem with DEI being kind of pigeonholed <laughs> as an HR because I feel like in order to be successful, it really has to go beyond the realm of HR, but that... I think today is kind of the starting place for a lot of people. Basically, I started a collective after just my own experiences as a woman of color working in tech. I think my first big aha moment where I was like, I need to do something about this was after the acquittal of the police officer involved with the Eric Garner case, which is timely because it's back in the news here in New York uh, this weekend. But it was when all these companies were turning their home screens black um, in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. And I was at this tech company and just kind of looked around and didn't really see any other black or brown faces. I think at the time there were a few hundred employees and there was one other biracial woman in the entire company. And I just, I came into work and I was really struggling with that story for whatever reason. And I, I mean, there had been so many of those stories, so I don't know why that day it just felt extra heavy. But I remember like looking around and not seeing anybody who looked like me and feeling super alone and thinking like, I don't belong here. And just not wanting, one, myself to feel that way, but not wanting other people to feel that way. And I ended up leaving the company and moving to another company that had a lot more structure in place to talk about and do work around diversity and inclusion. And I got super excited and then just felt like my hands were so tied. I got involved and there was still this sense that we were kind of powerless as employees, um, that we just didn't have the buy-in from leadership. Um, there wasn't a lot of strategic thought being put into the work. And I think after that, you know, I decided to go back to school and learn more about this work, started taking on some kind of side consulting projects, um, supporting other consultants, and realized, you know, this was really where after 
all of these years of kind of job hopping and trying to figure out what I wanted to be doing, I really felt like this was where I was meant to be. And all of these random professional experiences that I'd had to date from operations and strategy to client management to marketing and branding um, were all kind of like building up to this moment of launching my own uh, company. And it really has kind of come to this this path that feels just really right. I think it is so interesting when you're in a company where you can look around and say, oh, there's nobody here that looks like me. Clearly there's something wrong, right? Like, like everybody can wrap their head around that. But then to go to someplace else where they say that they're talking about it and that they say that they're making space for it. And yet you kind of come up, the frustration of the same exact walls are there. It's just like they're painted over so you don't see them right away, right? Like we put, we put artwork on the wall so you don't know it's a wall. <laughs> um, I really, uh, I guess I really appreciate that you can kind of take those differing experiences so that, so that when you are consulting, you can, you can really be like, no, I know what it's like out there. I know what it's like when there's no representation. And I know what it's like when there seems to be representation, but nobody's really getting to the heart of things. I think one of the biggest kind of responsibilities that I take so seriously, but also privileges, is to be able to sit in rooms with leadership teams now in the position that I am and surface what it's actually like to be a marginalized person in the workplace. You know, that's not a position that I was in as an employee. And a lot of times those voices just really go unheard and they just leave the company. And so I think it's one of the greatest gifts that a company can even give just as a starting step is to give employees an opportunity to surface what's going on for them and how they're perceiving the environment and really be willing to listen and take action around that. And so, yeah, I'm just super grateful to get to do that every day. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's so important to be having those conversations when it comes to making sure that our spaces are really like not just like faux inclusive, but truly inclusive and be able to have those conversations. But recruiting is another big piece of that. And you recently posted on Twitter that 95% of all diversity recruiting efforts fail. So talk to us a little bit about that. Like why, what are we doing wrong? What as HR professionals, what should we be thinking about? Because that's a pretty abysmal number. Um, And, and what, what do we need to be doing? I'd say there's, probably two main things that I've seen that have been barriers to companies being successful around diversity recruitment, particularly with the types of companies I work with, which are high growth, fast paced startups that are just like often, you know, some of our clients are bringing a hundred plus new folks into the company a month, right? And when you're hiring that quickly, you are just concerned about getting butts in seats. And so this idea of needing to slow down to improve on the quality of candidates and quality meaning not just great at what they do, but also being representative of lots of different backgrounds and perspectives to make your work better. I think there are a lot of great intentions, but then when the rubber meets the road, it becomes hard to stick to the plan and stay accountable. Um, So that's one thing. And then the other thing is that there's just such a need to look at the recruiting process holistically. So when I talk to companies who are trying to do this work and really recruit more diverse teams, they're almost always tackling a piece of the recruiting process really well. So whether it's sourcing more diverse candidates through strategic partnerships 
or doing bias training for their hiring managers, they're, they're doing pieces of it, but they're not looking at the every step of the funnel. So that means that wherever they're not focusing, that's where they start to lose candidates. So one of the things that we really stress with our clients is to look at the process from start to finish and identify where bias is coming into play. And you have to attack every single area because as soon as you miss a piece, you cut off the funnel. Um, and that's where you, you know, candidates aren't going to ever make it to the hiring stage if, you know, you're losing them even at the very last part of the, the process. So just, I'm going to go off script as I want to do. Sorry, Wendy. Um, <laughs> so, so can you kind of tie those two things together, right? So the, so the previous question we were talking about, you were talking about like how companies, like they don't have the training, they don't have the mechanisms in place. They don't know how to have the real conversations, right? Mm. And then our recruiting efforts. So, so how do companies kind of tie those two things? Because I know that like we can get, like you could get the entire funnel right, but then if you don't have the other piece, you're going to recruit great people and they're not going to stay. How do we link those for companies? Like how do we link, like it's not just about hiring for diversity, it's about retaining diversity. Just talk a little bit about the link between those. Yeah, I think the the best way that I've articulated it to companies and particularly to leaders who kind of really need to understand the ROI and uh, the impact is this idea of a leaky bucket syndrome. Um, so you can pour, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars into your recruiting uh, effort. And if you're losing them, right, like that money, you're, it's just you're turning over as fast as you um, are bringing new talent in. And it's funny, I've talked to a couple of companies who, are, who will say things like, we brought in so many more women this year and we don't understand why there aren't more women at the company. And it's like, well, we can start to do some simple math there and say, well, how many women left the company this year? Right. And so if you're not setting up your company, um, to be able to properly engage and retain diverse talent, then you essentially are throwing your money away into diversity recruiting efforts. So how are you setting your company up to embrace that talent when they come in? And I think the second piece to that is, you know, when it's, it's natural to want to put diversity recruiting efforts first, because especially if you're growing, you want to change that ratio as quickly as possible. But the problem is, is that with things like Glassdoor, you start to get a bad reputation amongst diverse candidates or people who had worked there prior. And all of a sudden it becomes 10 times harder to recruit recruit more diverse talent in the future because anyone can go on Glassdoor and see these reviews where it says, you know, this environment is not safe for women or for LGBTQ folks or for people of color. And so you know, it's so important to build, think about that employee brand and their reputation as well. I, I think that's key. And it, it really just ties right into where we should go next in the conversation anyway, is talking about the inclusion piece, because I think that is, that's key in, in getting people to stay. You know, again, you can have as many people in that pipeline as you want, but if they're not going to stay, it doesn't matter. <laughs> They're just going to, they're going to come and they're going to leave and that's not going to help your numbers at all. And I loved what you talked about um, at Namely, and I've probably said it a couple of times too, but 
you like you actually had action items. We didn't just talk about this pie in the sky and diversity and inclusion and blah 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 blah. You know, you you gave us some actual action items on everyday inclusion, and I think that's so important because, you know, if we're focusing on just making on making everybody feel welcome and making everyone feel like they're at home, and and I think that you're going to get everybody if you're not just focusing on one kind. So talk to us a little bit about some of those small everyday things that, that we can do as individuals. We don't have to be leaders to make that more inclusive environment. Yeah, I think it's, we so underestimate the power of helping people be more effective in their interpersonal relationships with one another. Um, you know, because it's an issue close to my own personal identity and my own experiences, I think a lot about the research study done by Harvard Business Review around Black women and kind of the opportunity gap due to lack of inclusive management practices. And one of the things that, you know, the study showed was that Black women were the least likely to get honest, actionable feedback. And mostly their managers just avoided them and were really vague. And it, you know, the way that it impacts Black women in the workplace and their ability to grow and their ability to want to stay at an organization is massive. And like all the Black History Month panels and all of the pride parades, all of those things mean nothing if we aren't thinking about the day-to-day -day interactions. So I know some of the things that I talked about at the conference kind of fell into three buckets. One was just kind of the environment, physical environment that we're creating. So thinking about accessibility and inclusivity when it comes to bathrooms, but also having public and private spaces that um, are conducive to people doing their best work, regardless of whether they're an introvert or an extrovert, and having just really low, low lift things like decor that reflects everyone's values and culture, not just uh, the personal interests of a few. Another big area that I spoke about at Namely that I think is so key because of the amount of time we spend in meetings is how you run meetings in an inclusive way so that you're not just having people in the room, but you're actually giving them a voice once they're in that room. Because I think we've done these things where we've kind of like moved the needle and yet we face new challenges and we keep saying, well, why aren't we having the impact that we want? So the first thing was like, everyone was talking about, we need people to get in the room and have a seat at the table. Uh, and then we got them there and we were like, why aren't we still surfacing diverse ideas, seeing the true power of difference? And it was like, oh, because we're not giving them a voice. So then we gave them a voice, but then it's like, but then we're not valuing their, their voice equally, right? So how are we, how are we surfacing new ideas? Um, whether it's one of the like very tangible things that we talked about um, and I've talked about in the past is making sure senior leaders are speaking last in meetings because we have a tendency to anchor around the more senior perspectives or more tenured perspectives and no one wants to go against that right no one wants to be the dissenting opinion but sometimes that dissenting opinion is the one that's going to provide the the best solution so you know creating a, a meeting environment where people can feel like it's okay to take a risk and feel like it's okay to present different ideas whether that's you know checking in, inviting different people to meetings than you would normally invite. 
And then I think the last piece is really around manager, managee relationships, because that is huge. The impact that managers have on people's desire to stay and be engaged is probably one of the most impactful areas in the workplace. And so how are we teaching managers to ask questions and be open to feedback instead of holding on to power and thinking that it should only flow one way? How are they empowering their employees and coaching them and being really cognizant of their own biases and how that filters information that they're getting from their direct reports and also how they're perceiving their direct reports behavior and work product through that filter. So yeah, I think those are a couple of the things that have a really big impact on people's daily lives. You're singing my song. I think that that manager managing <laughs> relationship is, is the key pretty much to everything as far as like an employee's experience. And I think that thinking about that inclusion piece, it is your relationship with your manager that sets the tone for if your voice is really valued in an organization or not. And I don't think that managers often understand that truth and understand how important they are in that role in an organization? I don't think that in, particularly in these kind of like the tech world, like high growth companies, I don't think that we have uh, properly expressed the value of good management because we often move people up really into management positions without much like training or, I mean, it's not treated as big of a responsibility as it really is and should be. And so you have a lot of ill-equipped managers, but you're not really signaling to them that like how important good people management is and then giving them the resources to be really great people managers. And yeah, it, it's just interesting to me. I mean, the way that we, the, the, traditional org structure that really says you're a great individual contributor or you've been with the company for a really long time so now we're going to just give you a bunch of people to manage um, which is a completely different skill than being like a great software engineer and it's those middle managers that have just the biggest impact and they just get the least amount of resources and training and it's so unfortunate. It really is. And I think it's something, uh, to be honest, I think that's something that HR professionals think about a lot, but I don't think that we think about it enough in terms of the, the equity and inclusion piece, right? So we'll think about it in terms of, you know, right, they were a great software engineer, so now they're going to manage people and they don't know how to manage people and maybe people aren't so engaged or um, they don't know how to do reviews or they don't know how to do feedback. And we talk about those skills, but we don't really talk about the equity and inclusion piece of that and, and valuing voices. So I really, I really appreciate that. There's like a lens to that of teaching people particularly how to communicate across a difference. I mean, that's where I really see that gap happen is people don't understand how, I don't, I don't think that a lot of people are, aware about how much their worldview impacts the way that they interact with their direct reports um, and who they do or don't give attention and feedback to. You know, we're just so primed unconsciously to be, to gravitate towards people like us. And I think also I was having this really great conversation with someone else in the HR space the other day, and we were talking about how, especially in startup land and culture there's this idea of like we don't want to be rigid we don't want to be like a big corporation with like a ton of rules and like structure and um 
unfortunately, I think that ties back to a lot of the problems that tech and like startup companies have is that they don't realize that actually structure can be really helpful in creating and driving equity. Um, because when people don't have structure, they gravitate towards what feels most comfortable and most natural to them. And that means sticking with people who are like them. Absolutely. Absolutely. I want to talk about accelerators. So you, it comes up in your bio and I'm really curious about it. Um, you're currently offering the opportunity for people to work with your team on topics such as inclusive recruiting and these things that we're talking about. Tell us a little bit about what accelerators is and what people can expect from these kinds of programs. Yeah, I am super excited about this service that we have been hard at work developing for the past year. I think it's especially exciting to apply an accelerator model or another way that we've described it is group consulting to DEI work specifically because the work itself can often be so confusing and isolating and everyone's wondering what other companies are doing and how they can learn from one another to be more effective. And I feel like as a whole, we've kind of been doing this work in silos, right? Like we go to conferences and we try to glean as much as we can, but then we kind of go back to our own offices and maybe we work with a consultant. And I know one of the first questions most of our clients ask is what are other companies doing? But we don't often take the opportunity to learn from one another. And so what's unique about the structure of this program is that it's a combination of learning and doing in a group setting. So we're bringing together um, 20 companies over the course of three months to build a community of peer learning and accountability but also giving them access to our best consultants that are focused on inclusive recruiting. Essentially what that looks like is we assign four companies to peer, a peer group that are facing similar challenges um, and they might be in different industries, but the common bond is that they're working through very similar challenges. And so during a combination of in-person sessions and then having access to templates and office hours and one-to-one -one guidance with mentors, all the companies are actually refining their recruitment process to minimize bias from start to finish in real time. So the goal is to add you know, structures and measures of accountability to everything from defining their diversity hiring goals to creating a more inclusive employer brand to training their hiring managers on interviewing inclusively. And so at the end of the three months, the, the output is, is that they have this refined recruiting process that has looked at every piece of the funnel, but then that knowledge is institutionalized for their recruiters. And I think that's kind of the really key piece is that we can't continue to depend on consultants. We have to institutionalize this knowledge so that companies can really be uh, able to do this work in the long run. And so it's this concept of giving a man a fish versus teaching him how to fish. And I like to think that we're teaching these recruiters and companies how to fish so that they really are set up for success. That's a great concept. So I actually was um, talking to someone recently and we were talking about that whole model and like, giving a man a fish versus teaching a man how to fish versus taking the next step and wondering like who has access to the fish pond and like why do some people have a lot of fish in their pond and why do some people have very few or a fence around their pond so I'm falling more in love with that model because it gives so much to think about um, beyond just teaching somebody how to fish yeah 
I think that was another thing that was really exciting for us. And people have asked me all the time, it's so funny, especially in the beginning when we would talk to investors, everyone kept saying, you know, why are you not going after Fortune 500 companies? Because you can, they have huge budgets, like go after Fortune 500 companies. And my response has always been that those companies, like they have budgets, they, you know, there's something specifically one interesting, like poses an interesting challenge that I love to being scrappy and figuring out how to work with smaller companies resources, but two, having access to the resources to build an inclusive company culture earlier on before your problem gets so out of control and you have so many people that you need to like go through change management practices with is so important. I don't want especially marginalized people, I don't want them to have to make the choice between going and working for a big corporation that has hundreds, you know, thousands of people that look like them or working at a startup where they really care about the mission and they love the culture, but, you know, these companies don't know how to be inclusive um, and create equitable practices. So the group consulting model has really allowed us to bring our services to companies that otherwise just wouldn't have access at that stage, which is really exciting. That's very exciting. I'm, I was, when I saw that on your website, I was like, oh, that's so cool. Can you come to South Dakota? Because, you know, <laughs> <laughs> it's all about access. I don't have access here. Um, Hopefully one day. <laughs> I hope so. I hope so. I think, you know, and I, for me, that's, that's one of the things that I think about because it is true about having the, the access and social media and the internet has helped a lot of that because here in South Dakota, we are, we're kind of cut off from a lot of stuff. And so we don't see that and we don't get a, a chance to experience a lot of those things. So um, I love what social media has done um, to open this up. And I think that's kind of why I love podcasting as well, because this allows me to introduce people to you who I got to hear speak, but not everyone does. So it's all about sharing. Sharing is caring. <laughs> uh, well, Kelly, it is now time for everyone's favorite part of the, um, our main podcast, the HR Social Hour Half Hour Podcast, that favorite podcast, which is our half hour question connection. But we have switched it up a little bit because we are Wonder Women and not uh, just HR pros. So, but we do love to talk about networking because that's why we're here. Tell us how networking has helped you in your career and what's been really effective for you. Yeah. Oh my, I saw this, like, I was thinking about this question and I was like, kind of dreading it because I'm painfully shy. Like people meet me and they just assume I'm a very outgoing person. And I think in like small groups, I definitely am. But you know, I, I think my team has to give me a pep talk every time I'm getting ready to go to a conference or like a big networking event. And so I really had to shift my idea of what networking looks like. I used to think it was about like talking to as many people as possible, giving out my business card to everyone, taking my shot pitching myself really hard. And I think that for me, what's been really effective has been to really just change to what's more natural for me, which is having more one-on-one -on -one conversations. And so now it's more about just finding one or two people. Um, if I leave a conference and I've had 
a really good, interesting conversation with like one or two people, I am so happy because the quality is there rather than just trying to focus on quantity. And almost inevitably, other people end up connecting me. Like through those one to two people, I end up meeting so many more people rather than just being kind of a blank, you know, I talked to someone for five minutes, they don't remember who I am, I don't remember who they are. So yeah, that's been my new philosophy around networking. And it's made it a lot less painful and a lot more effective. I, I like that. I, it's about the connection. And that's, that's kind of where we are. I, I am and Anne is um, that extrovert who can talk to everybody. But I think she's kind of on the same page of that onesie twosie rather than meeting everybody. Yeah, I really am. Yes, I, I could absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, <laughs> that's fine. You, you, you may speak for me, Wendy. Um, but it's, <laughs> it's true, right? Like I am an extrovert because I sometimes I feel like I'm the only extrovert in HR because everyone we ask this question to says, "Well, I'm such an introvert, and it's so hard to do it." But I, I think that networking has somehow got a bad rap, and I think that when we hear that word. We think of, right, like those really horrible events where just everybody's shoving business cards in everybody's face. And I don't think that was ever successful networking for anyone anyway. Yes, I can easily talk to every person in the room and I have no problem with it. But the real connections, those deeper one-on-one conversations, those are the lasting relationships. And you're right, even, you know, even for the extrovert who can talk to everybody, people that I have those conversations with, and then the people that I meet through those people that I've had the conversation, the ones that are the most meaningful. So I think that we need to, like, I really appreciate the way that you think of networking. And I think that that's the model we should all be thinking about when we hear the word. It shouldn't be how many business cards can I hand out or how many LinkedIn connections can I make? It should be who are the couple, you know, couple, three people that I can have a deep and meaningful conversation with that we can really connect. Yeah because those relationships are the ones that are going to, that are going to be more influential in your life and in their life. Right. Yeah. Because it's not just what can I get? It's, it's what connections right. can I make that I also have something to, to bring to the table? Yeah. I think that's, I mean, I love that like versus the, what can I get out of this? I found that what's more interesting to me is just having a really inspiring or interesting conversation. I, and, and I've had to, again, shift my point of reference for networking to say, I want to leave this conference or event feeling inspired or excited about something rather than feeling like, oh, I got, you know, I might have potential business, right? Because that comes. But the inspiration piece, I think, is often harder to find and more impactful. Absolutely. So let's talk about inspiration. Um Tell us about some women that you listen to or that you read or follow to get inspiration and and to keep you moving forward. There's a lot of women in tech that I love. Ellen Powell is one amazing advocate for women in tech. Aubrey Blanche, who's the head. I hope I'm not butchering their names either. I'm sorry if any of them listen to this podcast. Aubrey Blanche is the head of diversity and inclusion for Atlassian, and she's just incredible and super inspiring. I love Michelle Kim. I follow her on LinkedIn. She's the CEO of Awaken and does a lot of diversity and inclusion trainings, but is also just an unapologetic social justice advocate, which I think, you know, is like a unique position to take, but she is just so strong in her belief of what's right. And I really admire that. And then more on the 
company culture side. I love Catherine Minshew of The Muse. She's a good friend of mine. Love Erica Hart. Uh, she is pretty big on Instagram and, again, a really powerful social, social justice educator, especially around issues of race. I learn so much from her constantly. And then, this is so cliche, but I just love Brene Brown. <laughs> I just... I was late to the Brene Brown train and I got to be at an event where she was speaking that was pretty intimate and got to personally ask her some questions. There are just so many powerful lessons around interpersonal effectiveness there that I think can be applied to the workplace. Someone told me recently, they were saying, you know, workplace coaching is like, is like therapy. It's ultimately we're all these people carrying around all of this trauma and we're all trying to like, we're all in relationship with one another, but we don't look at it as a relationship. So we just like ignore and like, it's just, it's interesting. We're, yeah, work, work is like one big family that you <laughs> need to also express boundaries with and be effective with and yeah. That's, that's very true. I never, I never thought of it that way, but it's so true. You know, it is, there's, there's kind of a, I think it's Katrina Kibben made a comment on, on Twitter about, you know, we, maybe we don't want to say that, you know, we're like a family at work because maybe people have had a bad experience with a family and what maybe we need to, maybe that's a different way to look at it, that it's, it's, it's family and there's going to be good and bad and, you know, it's not the the traditional thought of family where, you know, you're family, so you're going to do it, damn it. But more that, yeah, there's going to be people you like and people you don't like, but you're going to go to work every day and <laughs> get the job done. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, interesting. Might have to get Katrina on and have that conversation. That'd be interesting. All right. I... Favorite movie that features a strong female cast? Two of my all-time favorites that drove my childhood friends crazy because I made them watch them on a weekly basis are Now and Then and Beaches. I just loved because both of them look at the power of female friendship and I am just convinced that I'm going to grow old and retire with like my female friends <laughs> because there's just nothing... There's nothing better than like a group of strong female friends. Amen. Yep, that's awesome. What about a favorite female musician or band? I'm not sure if she's my favorite of all time, but I'm really loving Lizzo right now. She is just so herself and so much about self-love, even when it's like a fake it till you make it kind of love, which I think is really powerful, right? Because the narratives we tell ourselves become truth. And so I think she's awesome. My first kind of big female love musician uh, was... Fiona Apple. She was my first CD and she's remained a favorite until this day. And I remember standing in Best Buy with my grandmother when I was like 10, picking up, and she was like picking up this CD from one of those top of the charts racks going like, are you sure you don't want the Backstreet Boys? <laughs> and I'm like clutching this CD with this like pale, wafy woman in all of her moodiness and being like, no, I want Fiona Apple. <laughs> I'm so confused. Oh, 
I'm, I'm going to have to listen to Lizzo. I don't think I've heard her yet. So I need to. She's amazing. She's really She's amazing. Yeah. I really, um, I think, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Kelly, like the stories that she tells herself in her songs are really powerful. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's this idea that you can't tell those stories until you feel them. And that is just so not true. It's kind of like backwards. You have to tell them so you can kind of make it your reality. And I really admire that she is like top of the billboard charts right now. And this is her fourth album actually. So just another testament to like keep going when you have something that you're passionate about and when it's meant to be like when that's what you're meant to be doing, it will come to fruition and it's just not always on our timeline, but it doesn't make it any less sweet when it happens. Definitely not. I, there's no such thing as an overnight success. There's, there's just not. You've, you've been working. If you're good, you've been working. Um, how about a fe favorite female protagonist in a book? or favorite female fictional character? I don't remember her name, but the protagonist in Memoirs of a Geisha, that was like one of my favorite books when I was younger. And I think what I loved about her character was that she was this woman who was thrust into a world that she didn't choose and really just found a way to make it work for her and make her own way. And I think that's really powerful because we don't always choose the paths that we get put on but we can choose kind of where it ends up I like that yeah I like that too I think that's like sort of that along with thinking about Lizzo and the stories that we tell ourselves changing the narratives in our heads regardless of our outside circumstance that leads us right you change the narrative in your head whether you truly believe it right now or not and then it allows you to make those choices because I think all of us find ourselves sort of set on paths that we didn't choose. We get to choose where we're going to take it and we get to choose. We all of us have agency to like create the world that we want to be living in. So you are a very busy woman. Um, it's, I mean, the collective sounds like it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you busy. You're, you're, you're doing, you're speaking at conferences. You're doing lots of stuff. What do you like to do in your spare time? Tell us things about you that are, you know, not work related that we do <laughs> so we can know you better. This is something that I like cling to. I'm like, be a person outside of work because um, it's so important. I have a dog that I love. He's been with me for going on 14 years. Um, so he's a ripe old man. He's such a sweetheart. I actually had to lock him out. <laughs> he would not disturb this or he was going to make an appearance on your podcast. But other than that, so I spend time with him. I love to eat. I feel very grateful for that. It wasn't always that way. And I, it's like really made me cherish just all of the amazing restaurants in New York. And yeah, so I find great joy in checking out new restaurants. And then probably my favorite, favorite thing is to be able to travel. Any excuse to travel, especially if it's by water, I am, I'm there. So I'm actually going on a much needed vacation in a couple of weeks to Israel and then Tokyo. So I am super excited. <laughs> Wonderful. How fun. And dogs are always welcome. I'm never going to turn a dog away. I'm a dog person. So um, <laughs> if you wanted to, you know, if he was going to be a part of it that's fine but oh well Kelly you have survived our conversation you know 
I always say that, but it's not like we thought you wouldn't. It's not hard <laughs> to survive our conversation, but we appreciate you coming in. So this is your opportunity to share with our listeners how they can get in touch with you. Yeah. So I, you can always reach out to us, to me via collectives website, which is hello-collective.com. I am on Twitter and LinkedIn at Kelly M. Wagner, Kelly with an IE. And I am making a commitment for the rest of the year to be more active on Twitter. So hopefully there will be things for you to engage with. Awesome. Back with me. Love it. Well, we will definitely see you on Twitter for sure. <laughs> How about you, Anne? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn and you can find me on Twitter. I think by the time this comes out, I will be off of my social media break. <laughs> uh, you can find me on Twitter at Antomk, A-N-N-E-T-O-M-K. And when I am not on a brief social media break, I'm pretty active on Twitter. And so I would love to interact with folks. And you can find me on Twitter. I am Wendell93 um, or my blog, mydailyjourney.com. Uh, please don't forget to rate, review, and share this episode with others to spread the word about the HR Social Hour and HR Wonder Women. Huge, huge thank you to Skill Scout for all of their assistance this past year in editing and producing our episodes. It's so wonderful to work with them, and they're doing some fantastic stuff. So be sure to find them out on social media to learn more about what they do. And so thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you, Kelly, so much for joining us here. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Anne, as always, for... Um, my co-host here and so for the hr social hour half hour podcast and hr wonder women this is wendy now go tell your story